last Sunday. And I thought they were going to do it this year. You know, I was a Fairweather fan this year because I stopped watching the NFL a few years ago. I just couldn't take it anymore. thought there's a better way to spend my Sunday afternoons than being upset and frustrated and annoyed with the Lions week after week. I'm done. But as a Fairweather fan, I jumped back on the bandwagon for the playoffs and thought maybe, everybody said they're going to do it this year, maybe they'll do it. And the first half, I, I, I believed it. And then the 49ers just crushed them in the second half. And I, here we go again. They found another way to let me down. Now, I will remind you, some of you know back in 2011, the Lions started their season 5-0. and 49ers came into town. They didn't have their chaplain with them, so I was called upon to preach to the 49ers. The next day, they went out and crushed them. And the Lions went on to lose four of their next six games. I'm just saying, I cannot be blamed this time. It's not me. It is the Lions. They were on a mission to go to the Super Bowl, but they were not ready for anything. They were not ready for the 49ers. Now, we have a mission, too. We're out to win the world to Jesus, and we cannot afford not to be ready for anything. Uh, we cannot give up. We cannot quit. We cannot be fair-weather followers of Jesus. We've got to keep going no matter what the resistance, whatever the rejection, whatever the opposition is. This is a supernatural mission that we're on, and we're going to need some supernatural help because there is supernatural opposition. And I, think the, I think the Lions know that they're going to come back next year, and they're going to try even harder, and they're going to, they're going to go all the way next year. Or not. Or not. I don't know. All I know is we have got to stay on course. The mission that Jesus has given us of pointing people to the way, truth, and the life, it's not going to be easy. And so as we're starting this new series, we are talking about spirits, supernatural spirits, both holy and unholy. And the main point is to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to make you effective in your mission. Now, we're all on mission, but every year for about a month, we... We take some time out and talk about the missions that we support. And February is our mission month. We talk about those who, that we support financially, and we pray for them and send them out into different parts of the world. But understand that everybody, every Christian is on a mission. Wherever you go, you represent Jesus. You're supposed to share the good news with people. Now, uh, some years, as we talk about missions, we go through the book of Acts. We've done that for many years, and we're returning to Acts this year, Acts chapter 19. Acts is the history of the early church. It's the fifth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four Gospels, and then the book of Acts. And we're going old school for the next month. I'm asking you to bring your Bibles, to open your Bible. So go ahead, if you've got a Bible like this, open it up to Acts 19. If you've got a phone, take out your phone. Let's go online. Do your Bible app. Maybe you have the Version app, Y-O-U version. If you don't have it, you could download it. But you can also just go online to type in a website like BibleGateway.com, BibleGateway.com, or BibleHub.com. There are many ways that you can read the Bible online. But I want, I want to get everybody involved in reading the Bible for themselves. And by the way, I'm going to be using the ESV, the English Standard Version. That's the translation that, that I'm going to be reading from, and you're welcome to join me in that as well. Now, we didn't get to do the book of Acts. I'm going to let you take some time to look that up, Acts 19. We didn't go through Acts last year, so it's been two years where we left off, where Paul had just begun his third missionary journey. He, he, hey, making disciples carries all kinds of challenges and risks, but it's worth it. It's worth it. So are you ready for anything as we jump back into Acts 19? Because 
It's going to get wild. But I've got, I got to get your bearings here with a map. So let's put up a map because I'm, I'm sure everybody here is a fan of ancient geography. And I want you to, to understand these are real places we're talking about. These are not fabled fairy tale places. So Paul went on three journeys. The first one, he started out there at the bottom. You see on the right side of the map, Syria in yellow. At the very bottom is the capital, Jerusalem. That's the capital of Israel. Judea, that whole area. Uh, if you go a little bit further north through the top of the yellow area of Syria, it's the city of Antioch. It's where they were first called Christians. And Paul starts from Antioch and travels westward across what is now the modern-day uh, nation of Turkey. Back then it was generally called Asia Minor, but there were different provinces. And he starts a bunch of churches in that area. Then he travels back. On his second journey... He starts out again to go back to the places he'd already been and strengthen the churches throughout those areas, Cilicia, Galatia in the green, Asia in the red. But God had more for him to do. He gave him a vision of a man from Macedonia over on the left side of the map, over in Europe, that dark yellow area. The man in the vision said, come over here. So Paul traveled across into Europe, all the way down into the green area, which is the, the Grecian Peninsula, started all kinds of churches there as well. Um, Sometimes he was welcomed, sometimes he was not. He encountered a lot of opposition, mobs, uh, mocking from philosophers, but there were a lot of people who also accepted Christ. New churches were started, and then he headed back toward Jerusalem. So that's his second journey. The third journey starts back up in Antioch. On the right, top of the yellow Syria section, he journeys once again from Antioch across westward, across uh, Turkey, uh, the Galatia, Asia, uh, the, the, it's called also the area of Persia. Uh, and that's where we're going to pick up because that's where we left him off last time two years ago. So it's around the year AD 52 to 54, so about 23 years after Jesus died and rose again, after the church began in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. And we're going to go to Acts 19, verses 1 and 2. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, by the way, Apollos, what, where they're at there, they're going to be in the city of Ephesus, which is on the left side of, of uh, that, that Asia area. So Apollos was a brilliant Christian man who goes on his own missionary journey back over to Europe, to the west again, the left side of the map, to Corinth. That's when Paul himself comes into Ephesus. Paul passed through the inland country, came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, Well, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So there must have been something about them that made Paul question, Do you know about the Holy Spirit? Maybe they didn't have any evidence of the Holy Spirit. It was called the fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? That, that the character of Jesus, love, joy, peace, patience. So they knew about Jesus, they were followers, but they didn't know about the Holy Spirit, which means they had not experienced Christian baptism, which, you know, was, was how you received the Holy Spirit. Much like Apollos. Apollos, that brilliant Christian, went around teaching people about Jesus but didn't know about Christian baptism until Aquila and Priscilla, a Christian couple, took him aside and taught him the way of God more accurately. So all they had experienced was John's baptism. Remember John the Baptist? At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was baptizing people in the Jordan River. But it wasn't Christian baptism. It was a baptism of repentance to get people ready to receive the Messiah. Uh, Christian baptism came later on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, and it was tied to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So 
They had not experienced this yet. In fact, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you can't really be a Christian. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says, anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. So this is a big deal. Paul goes on and he said to them, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. So I want you to see how belief and baptism are tied together here. Baptism is the culminating act of your salvation. It's kind of the shorthand. If you ask, have you been baptized? You're saying, have you been saved? Have you believed? Have you repented? Have you been baptized? And uh, the thing is, they had not experienced this yet. They, they, they had, there was really no concept back then of an unbaptized believer. It all went together. Paul himself, when he got converted on the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to him. Paul believes. He repents for three days. He fasts. But it wasn't until he's baptized that his sins are washed away. Acts 22. He calls on the name of the Lord, and it's baptism that's connected to this. Why? Because in baptism, we are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's why it's an immersion. It pictures you going down, dying, rising up, out of the water. In fact, Mark 16, 15 says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. That's what Jesus says. And, and Matthew 28, Jesus says, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Galatians 3.27 says, anyone who uh, is baptized into Christ have put on or clothed yourselves with Christ. So what Christian baptism is connected with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and it's connected with receiving the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the mark of the new covenant. And I think so many people today who think they're Christians or claim to be Christians. They might go to church. They might read the Bible. They might pray. But they've never experienced this. Holy Spirit. What Holy Spirit? I didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And so they have lingering doubts. And they struggle with their faith because they've never experienced the promise of Acts 2.38. When Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They're missing out on that. And so in verse 5, says, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Maybe that's the example for you. If you've been a believer in Jesus, but you've never been biblically baptized, follow their example. Now that you've heard it, go ahead and do it. Why not? Why would you want to miss out on that? And you say, well, I was sprinkled as a baby. Okay, but this isn't being rebaptized because sprinkling wasn't biblical baptism. This is biblical baptism. So why would you want to miss out on that? You say, well, do I got to get baptized every time I learn something new in the Bible? Because I'm just hearing this. No, you only need baptism one time. There's one baptism. I mean, if we got baptized every time we learned something new, I mean, you'd have to get baptized every day, right? Or every time I sin, I got to get baptized. No, because we'd have to get baptized every day. One baptism. But do it the way God said. And by the way, there's no like biblical baptismal formula. You got to say these exact words. Because you say, that, that said be baptized in the name of the of the Lord Jesus. But didn't Jesus say, be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Which is it? Yes, it's, it's both. You can use either. The point is, it's Christian baptism. It's connected to the death and resurrection of Jesus. So verses 6 and 7 say, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now once you understand, people get confused about this when they talk about the Holy Spirit need to know that there are four gifts referring to the Holy Spirit. The first one would be a truth gift. That's where some were given the gift 
to be able to speak in the name of the Lord. Then, and so that's a gift of knowledge. The other three gifts are about power. So there are sign gifts, which was the ability to do miracles. There were service gifts, which was non-miraculous gift to serve the Lord. And there's a salvation gift. The Holy Spirit is tied to our salvation. It's for moral power. Now you need to know that in the Old Testament, there were already three of those gifts. There were already truth gifts because there were prophets. There were sign gifts because they did miracles. And there were service gifts. The Holy Spirit would come upon certain individuals for certain tasks. But what's new, the promise of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is the salvation gift. That's the big deal here. It's not the tongues. The tongues were speaking in other languages the speaker hadn't learned in order to be a sign. It was a sign gift to confirm the truth gift that that what they were speaking was from God. But the big deal was the salvation gift. That's the new thing that had been promised. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized for forgiveness of sins and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's what John had foretold. John the Baptist said, hey, I'm baptizing you with water, but there's one coming after me who's going to baptize you with water and the Holy Spirit. That's the big deal. It's being born again, being born of water and the Spirit. That's Christian baptism. It's one event, one baptism. We're baptized by one Spirit into one body. Titus 3.5 calls it the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Because how many people got baptized on the day of Pentecost? Acts 2. 3,000. How many continued to do sign gifts, miracles? Only 12. The apostles. Right? Acts 2.43 says many wonders and signs were being done through whom? Through the apostles. Acts 5.12 says many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of who? Of the apostles. So there's no record of anyone doing these kinds of miracles, these sign gifts, other than the apostles and those on whom they laid their hands. So people today run around claiming that they're doing all these miracles and they're apostles and all that. They ain't telling you the truth. Because that had to come through the laying on of real apostles' hands. The only time we see this phenomenon of the Holy Spirit coming upon people in this way is Acts 2, the day the church was born, and the 12 apostles spoke to the people as a sign. And then later in Acts chapter 10, on the household of Cornelius. Why? Because the first time it was a sign and there were only Jews present. And no Gentiles had become Christians and they wouldn't go talk to Gentiles until another sign happened in Acts 10. Peter proclaimed to Cornelius the truth about Jesus, the truth gift. The sign gift arrived of the, of the tongue speaking in other languages. And that confirmed to Peter, oh, okay, well, they can be saved too. They can receive the Holy Spirit. And so then they were baptized into Christ. So that's what we find in the book of Acts. And that's not something we expect to happen all the time. It only happened two times. That idea of baptism of the Holy Spirit. No, we all receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit when we're baptized in water. Because that's when we receive the Holy Spirit. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So Paul lays hands on these men. Uh, they, they speak in other languages, and they prophesy, so it's all the same kind of truth gift. And so in verse 8, we see Paul's typical pattern here. It says, he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So he's doing his best to be reasonable, but not everybody is reasonable. 
He's trying to persuade them using appeals and arguments from their own Hebrew scriptures because the Jewish people should have been the most ready to receive their own Messiah. They had all the promises. They had the prophecies, but still some rejected. And Paul's telling them this has always been God's plan to have Jews and Gentiles together in his kingdom. Uh, the, the church is the kingdom. The church is Israel. We are God's people all together. Verse 9, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So they're refusing all that evidence. They harden their heart. They speak evil about the way. Don't you love that? How Christians, they were, they were called the way, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we're trying to point people to the way. And it's just the same today is, you know, they, they went from uh, listening, considering it, to rejecting it, to now speaking evil of it. And in our culture, haven't we seen that take place? People used to think highly of Christians, like we were the good guys in society. Oh, church people, they're wonderful people. And then it became, well, kind of indifferent to everything. And then it turned against us a little bit, and they began to just, you know, begrudgingly tolerate us to the point now where they're belligerent against us. We're like, we're the bad guys in society now. Nothing new. They're going to speak evil against the way. And, and so there's a time when you just got to dust, your, shake the dust off your shoes, right? You got you to get away and go to people who are going to be more willing to listen. So they leave the synagogue. They go instead to the Hall of Tyrannus, some kind of a school or community center, right? I mean, we, we rented a school for 10 years because we didn't have a building. Back then, they didn't have church buildings. Small churches would meet in homes. But if you had a lot of people, you'd have to have a bigger place. So they apparently rent this Greek or Gentile school of Tyrannus. It always reminds me of Star Wars. It's, you know, Count Duco, he's called Darth Tyrannus. That's where it comes from right here. Did you know that? Star Wars is kind of in the Bible a little bit here. Um, verses 10 through 12 says, This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of who? Paul. Paul's the one who's doing miracles. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So uh, everybody's hearing about this because of the, these extraordinary miracles. What are the miracles for? They're authenticating the message. They're the credentials. And listen, throughout Bible history, there's really only three periods of concentrated miracles. In other words, when we're talking about genuine, biblical, extraordinary miracles, really only three times. Time of Moses. Why? Because there was new truth. And the miracles were the signs to listen to Moses. He's bringing in a covenant, the old covenant. The second time was during the time of Elijah and Elisha. Why? Because it was a new era of prophets. Now God was sending a bunch of prophets. So that was a sign to listen to them. The third time is the time of Jesus and the apostles. Why? Because they're bringing new truth. It's the new covenant. And each one of those three periods lasted less than 100 years. So in other words, we're not supposed to expect those kinds of extraordinary miracles all the time. God still can do miracles. But we don't have this kind of sign gift miracles that they had and they needed for these uh, times back then. In fact, the ability to do miracles was something that was the mark of an apostle. If you could do a miracle, it showed that you were an apostle. Mark 16, 20 says, the Lord confirmed their message by the signs. And 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with signs and wonders and mighty works. 
So, you know, people claiming, oh, the Lord spoke to me. The Lord's given me a message. Well, give me a miracle. Show me. I want some evidence or else I don't know that it's from the Lord. The only way I know it's from the Lord is if it comes from this book. That was confirmed. Your message has not. So Paul does these extraordinary miracles in Ephesus, which is, again, a very important city. It's the capital of the whole province of Asia. It's a very important commercial seaport. There was this big marble road that led from the seaport all the way in town into uh, this 25,000-seat stadium arena. There was a, it was a center of the occult, of idolatry, of all this mythology. Uh, they had a mag magnificent temple there. So Paul's doing these miracles right in Satan's own backyard. And that led to an awakening. It led to uh, people, it catalyzed confession of sins, repenting of their ways. Um, goes on to say, uh, verses 13 and 14. And by the way, it talks about these handkerchiefs and aprons and stuff. You know, there's con artists still trying that stuff today. They try and get you to, hey, we've, we've got this thing that's been blessed by so-and-so or dipped in the Jordan River and send in your donation and we'll give you that. Look, there's no power in the, the, the handkerchiefs. It's the fact that it had been with Paul. Remember how a woman with an issue of blood said, if I can only touch the hem of Jesus' garment, I will be healed. And she did it. She was healed. But the power wasn't in the garment. The power was in Jesus and her faith in Jesus. So, you know, don't, don't be taken in by those con artists trying to sell you their Jesus junk, okay? Uh, so the second story here in 13 and 14, something wild happens again. Then um, we've got the, the, the mentioned the, the, the evil spirits coming out. Okay, now we're going to get into some real exorcism here, but it's, it's a fake one. It's a counterfeit one. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. You know, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Now, uh, here's the thing. In, it, this is real. I mean, demons are real. Demon possession is real. And it wasn't unusual for Jewish priests to try to cast out demons. These are sons of a high priest, but they are, they are counterfeits because they're going around trying to cast out demons, and they saw how Paul did it. Paul's using the name of Jesus, so we'll try it too, because it seemed to work. But they got a lot more than they bargained for, didn't they? They said, I adjure you, which is like I'm speaking these magic words over and over, like incantations, like a spell. So these are counterfeits. They're, they're con artists. They're performance artists. And there's a lot of those guys around still today who pretend to have this power, but they've been exposed as frauds. But there is genuine spiritual phenomena, spiritual encounters. And the power of God will be demonstrated. So verse 15. But the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? So again, this is real. Uh, even demons believe in Jesus. It's no big deal to believe in Jesus. Demons believe. But this is not something to mess with. Don't, don't play around with the occult like it's all fun and games. People will, will get into the occult for fun and entertainment purposes. They'll go to fortune tellers and palm readers and astrologists. And they'll, they'll go to seances and psychics and spiritists and even play with Ouija boards thinking, oh, it's just all harmless fun. No, no, no. Well, first of all, most of it you're, you're dealing with con artists, deception, uh, delusion, 
But some of it can be real because there's demonic presence here. These seemingly harmless things can be a doorway into something very dangerous. Not just entertainment, but something very sinister. And so God says, stay away from the occult. Don't get involved in any of that stuff. And the Jewish people should have known better because they had plenty of scriptures that said, don't deal with that stuff. Deuteronomy chapter 18, Leviticus 19, Isaiah 8. Say, don't deal with anything like that. But in verse 16, it says, The man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them. He mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So they got exposed in more way than one. They, they were exposed naked, but exposed as frauds. They had no power because they weren't genuine believers in Jesus. Now listen, I'm old enough to remember going to see The Exorcist. Well, I didn't see it. I still haven't seen it to this day. But I remember people who went to see it, and it messed them up. People still say that's the scariest horror movie of all time. Oh, it's just fun. It's just a movie. No, no, no. That's serious stuff. And it really messed with a lot of people back then. It, it really harmed them in a lot of ways spiritually. Now, it scared the snot out of some people, and it kept, kept them far away from all the devil stuff. Other people were lured into it even more. They were fascinated by it. And uh, all that, that occult stuff puts a friendly face on what is really a very dangerous uh, thing. Now, understand, Hollywood exorcisms are very different than biblical exorcisms, but it's not something to mess with. Um, and, that, it, you know, it's funny, they're running out naked in the street, but it's also very frightening. And uh, verse 17 goes on to say, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So yeah, holy fear fell. And I think that's what we need today. Is why, why is society so messed up? Why is the world in such a mess? In our very own culture that used to be a pretty much of a Christian-type culture, you don't find that anymore. Why? Because there is no fear of the Lord before their eyes. Nobody takes God seriously anymore. We play around, we play games with all this nonsense, this worldly stuff, this occultic stuff. And we need this kind of fear to fall again. Well, we take God seriously. And it, it catalyzes revival and awakening and confession and repentance. And that's what happens here, verses 18 and 19. It says, many, also many of those who were now believers came. So even the Christians came and they're confessing and they're divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they claimed the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So they're, they're so convicted, they're coming and burning their books, which contain, you know, all kinds of spells and, and charms and formulas and incantations, Book of the Dead, Book of Shadows. Now, I understand magic arts are different than magicians. That's fine. Go watch a magician who's just doing tricks and sleight of hand. But these are people actually involved in the occult, in divination, in uh, superstitions, you know, the, you know, the evil eye and all that stuff. Some of you brought up you know, you got to eat certain foods on New Year's Day and the number 13 and uh, uh, you, you, horoscopes. All that stuff is the occult. And people claim, oh, there's power in it. There's no real power in magic arts. You know how I know? Because if, if there were, the people practicing them would all be very wealthy and healthy and beautiful and thin and have wonderful families. But that's not really the case, is it? Usually those folks are pretty miserable. And they're, they're in bondage. And they live in fear. And we know 
that much of this, again, is just delusion and deception, but some of it's very real. Supernatural encounters to give the devil a foothold in your life. So yeah, we came, we burned all of our books. You say, oh man, I knew it. Christians are crazy. Book burnings, that's hell. Well, you tell me which is more crazy. Holding on to all that stuff or getting rid of it. Makes more sense to me. Get rid of it. Uh, so yeah, book bonfire. And, and the value of it was like 150 workers' salaries for a year. How much money today is wasted, squandered on the occult, books, paraphernalia? You know, back when I was a teenager, I had a lot of records, vinyl, albums. And a lot of them weren't, weren't very good. Shouldn't be listening to them. I got convicted about that. And I said, I'm going to get rid of them. So again, I took my vinyl albums, went outside and played Frisbee with them, broke every one of them. And my friends were appalled. They're like, oh man, you could have given us those records. Or you could have sold them. Like, well, you're missing the point. Nobody should have them. I don't want anybody to be influenced by that stuff. And that happened recently to Kat Von D, you know, the reality TV star. Last year, she came to Christ. I mean, she was into all this witchcraft and tarot cards and all the macabre kinds of things. And she looked around at all of her friends who were into all that stuff and into drugs, and she saw how miserable they were. But then she looked at her Christian friends, and they weren't perfect, but she saw such a difference. And she said, I want what you have. I love the light that you shine. So Kat Von D became a believer, got baptized. What'd she do? She threw out all of her tarot cards, all of her witchcraft books, everything macabre, and she became a new creation. I already said the Old Testament warned against all that stuff, but so does the New Testament. Galatians 5.20 and Revelation 21.8 say, those who participate in witchcraft and magic arts will not inherit the kingdom of God. See how serious that is? Not fun and games. It's not just entertainment. So if you're a Christian, I'm going to give you three steps to take if you're involved in any of this. First, completely renounce any involvement in these things. I, I renounce the devil and all his works. If you have, have participated in it in any way, repent of it. Secondly, get rid of it all. Clean break. Cleanse your house. Get it out of the house. Why would you want to keep it there as a temptation or as a welcome mat to the devil? You don't have to burn it, but certainly get rid, throw it away. Even though, you know, it's, it makes me think of the movie Jumanji, you know, that kind of that haunted uh, game that they played and they threw it into the river because it was so evil, but then somebody else found it. So I don't want anybody else to find my stuff. So some way, destroy it. Even Kat Von D says, hey, all these magic books, all this stuff I got on my shelves, I don't want it here anymore. I don't want it influencing my family. I don't want to invite that stuff into my life. It's, it's gone, even if it has beautiful dust covers on it. Right? Third, rebuke out loud in the name of Jesus. If you're a Christian, there's power in the name of Jesus. There's victory. There's deliverance in the name of Jesus. He defeated our spiritual enemies at the cross and through his resurrection. So affirm that out loud. Claim that victory. You do not need an outside authority. You don't need an exorcist to come in. You already have that power within you. 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he who is in you, the Holy Spirit, than he who is in the world. So you have delegated authority from him. That power comes from knowing the truth, choosing the truth, living the truth. The power is in the truth. Jesus is the truth. The truth will set you free. The word of God is the sword of the Spirit. So use it in that fight. And if you're not a Christian, well, your first step is to come to faith in Jesus. Because you're in a spiritual battle you may not even be aware of, something that's going on behind the scenes. You may not believe that right now. You may reject it. 
But there's a battle going on for your soul. And only you get to decide who wins. And you may not be ready for that right now, but you need to know when you're ready, God is greater. You can be delivered because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So let's finish up here in verses 20 and 21. Uh, while he, he's, Paul's going to stay in Ephesus for a while. It says, so the word of God uh, continued to increase and prevail mightily after these events. Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he's saying, look, I, I'm going to go back over into Europe and because uh, I'm collecting a love offering for the poor people, poor Christians in Jerusalem. But after I do all that, I want to go to Rome. And he writes in the book of Romans, I'm, I'm ready to come see you. But he doesn't right away. He eventually will make it there, but you know how? In chains. He'll end up going to Rome as a prisoner. And then verse 22, having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So it's while he's there that they're going to start all these churches in Asia Minor. It's going to be the seven churches we read about in the book of Revelation. John writes to the seven churches that Paul and his followers helped start there. Next week, we're going to come back to Ephesus, and things are going to get wild and woolly again. There's going to be an uproar in a theater. There's going to be a mob, a riot happen. Are you ready for anything? Rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to make you effective in your mission. We're all on mission. So let's talk about the missions we support. Uh, every year, again, we, we talk about the, the three areas of our missions because Jesus said, go into all the world, make disciples. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. So the three main areas we support are first church planting, which is starting new churches in new places. It's really the most effective way to reach new people for Jesus. And we need pioneers to go out and do that in new places. Secondly, is compassion outreach. And that is... Uh, meeting physical and material needs in the name of Jesus with the idea of leading people to Jesus. We'll talk about that next week. And then in two weeks, we'll talk about global evangelism, all the other ways of sending out workers into the harvest field. But today we're talking about church planting and how important that is. And the, the main mission that we support is Impact Canada, which starts new churches in what has become a very godless country in so many ways. Very difficult to start new churches there. Um, so I want you to hear from our friend Jim Toon. Hey, hello, South Point friends. It's good to talk to you. My name is Jim Toon, and uh, I'm your partner from up here north of the border in Canada, representing Impact Ministry Group, and particularly focusing uh, work on planting churches in Canadian urban unchurched areas like the Toronto area. So uh, very, very grateful for your partnership over the years. Ratch has been a tremendous encouragement, and uh, we're so grateful for your faithfulness to help us continue to plant churches. Our uh, most recent project is the, the church in Burlington, the Emmaus Church, which uh, is a church that my wife and I took on as a project in, uh, in 2020 during the pandemic. So there were some challenges related to that, as, as you can well imagine. Uh, not to mention the cultural climate in Canada is uh, it's pretty funky right now and um, there are some things that have been uh, some changes that have been made to law that makes it criminal for the church to talk about certain subjects and um, so that's challenging we're definitely not in a church positive world 
at all uh, here in Canada. But uh, we're pressing forward and the church is, is doing really well. We've grown from a very small number of us in 2020 uh, to around 100 today and uh, families, children, lots of young men. And uh, this has been a, a, just a tremendous source of joy for us to see young men uh, coming to Christ because they seem to be one of the more underreached demographics in churches today. And uh, in fact, of our, our 14 baptisms in the last year, 10 of them were, were young men. Uh, so we thank God for that. We're doing intentional work among men, uh, men's breakfast, men's ministry. Uh, we're starting in, in just a couple of months, uh, one Friday a month, third Friday of every month, inviting men, uh, not just from our church, from other churches uh, and from the community at large to come and sing together. Just men, men and boys, so fathers and sons, mentors and mentees, grandparents and grandsons, but all males, uh, a space for, uh, for them to get together and um, be appreciated uh, as men. Uh, men are kind of slipping in our social value today in our world. We've done a good job at boosting up women as we should have, uh, but men are getting left behind. And so we've wanted to be a big encouragement to uh, to boys and men. The Polish church uh, continues to, to do very well. It's one of our oldest projects in Toronto, and uh, they continue to baptize people and do outreach in the Polish ethnic areas of uh, Toronto. And uh, meanwhile, Guelph is uh, continuing in their multiple house church model. So uh, we've got lots of good activity and we're gaining ground. And so we're grateful to see that happening in challenging times like we're in. And uh, we're very grateful to have your continued prayers and support. Uh, you're a blessing to us, so thank you. Doing great work in Canada. It's tough, man. It's tough to get people to go there to do that. But we also are doing our own church planning project in 2028. The goal is that we start an independent church somewhere. Um, we may be able to do it on our own, depending on how much funds we have to do it. We may partner with somebody else with another mission or some other churches. We don't know exactly how it's going to happen yet. Maybe somebody from within our own congregation will do it. It may be somebody that comes to us. We don't know where it's going to happen. It may be someplace in Michigan, maybe in North Dakota, maybe in Florida. Who wants to go start a church in Florida? Let's go. Let's go. Okay, we don't know where it's going to be yet, um, but we need to get one started, so be praying about that. Pray God raises up the right person at the right time for the right place.